Hello, this is Cleo Pascal, and welcome to Chatham House's Strategic Perspectives on the Indo-Pacific. This episode, we're in Mumbai, India. It's the 26th of November, 2019. On the 26th of November, 2008, this city was the victim of a vicious terrorist attack. The perpetrators came by sea, and the people here know very well how interconnected the region is and the urgent need for security. We just held our expert roundtable thanks to the excellent work of our local partner, Gateway House. It's a think tank here in Mumbai. It was a fascinating and complex discussion. You'll get a taste of it now as three experts from that roundtable are going to talk to us about what they think might be happening in the Indo-Pacific out to 2024. Our first guest is Captain Alok Bansal, the widely published director of the influential think tank India Foundation. Captain Bansal will give us an overview of India's positioning in the Indo-Pacific. Then we have Anil Devli, CEO of the Indian National Shipowners Association. Among other things, he'll explain the strategic importance of the merchant fleet. And finally, we're also lucky to have Arun Kumar Gupta, Managing Director of India Ports Global Limited, who will talk to us about India's involvement in Chabahar Port in Iran, among other things. So please settle in as we head to Mumbai. I'm Captain Alok Bansal, Director India Foundation. India Foundation is a 10-year-old think tank, New Delhi-based, and it propounds a nationalist viewpoint uh, of you. And when I say nationalist, it's not like European nationalism or something. It's actually patriotism, as I would say, as far as that is concerned. We are fairly close to the current government in power. At the workshop today, you described a little bit about India's view of the Indo-Pacific and how it differs from some of the other countries. So could you describe a little bit about that view? Yeah. Firstly, let me uh, make it very clear. Uh, We as an institution don't have an institutional viewpoint. What I say is my personal viewpoint. And my viewpoint is that as far as India's view is concerned, Indo-Pacific includes the entire body of water between Africa, that's the east coast of Africa, to west coast of Americas, which is significantly different from American viewpoint, which includes uh, Indo-Pacific as something from India onwards to the Pacific, which from India's point of view is not good enough because India would definitely not like to be on the fringes or margins of any geographical construct. Whereas we already are geographically bestowed the central position in the Indian Ocean region. So we would definitely want that and we have a major stake as far as West Asia and Africa is concerned. Also, because this sort of a construct gives a perception that US is trying to accommodate by not including it in the same geographical construct because the US strategic commands are so configured. And that's what we are trying to say. I think when U.S. says Indo-Pacific, I think they're looking as far as the jurisdiction of their Indo-Pacific command based in Hawaii is concerned. But well, military commands can have a different jurisdiction. But as far as the broad understanding of the Indo-Pacific region is concerned, that must include the entire Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean that is actually the landmass from east coast of Africa to west coast of America. One of the things that you've discussed is how there's an issue with CENTCOM and AFRICOM dividing up those issues, whereas India takes a much more holistic view of the region. I think when U.S. talks of Indo-Pacific and talks from India to Pacific, that is because that is how the Indo-Pacific command located in Hawaii is concerned. The CENTCOM area actually starts from the west of India, looking at Pakistan and the West Asia, and then you have the AFRICOM now, which is down below. So I think that military jurisdictions should not 
impinge on the broad understanding of the region as as a whole and the region as a whole pans from east coast of africa to west coast of america and i think there should be broad understanding because from india's point of view there is no uh, point being part of a regional grouping which does not include this particular part because otherwise indian ocean is already there and india's activist policy uh, is uh, covering the entire southeast asia so any uh, additional accretion takes place only in the form of south pacific one of the uh, issues that came up was that for for some of the other partners like the us or japan the indo pacific policy tends to be led from the department of defense but in in india it seems to be more from the ministry of external affairs so does that affect how india views its role in the region its interactions with the region undoubtedly i think when we are looking at uh, indo pacific it's actually a diplomatic tool or it's a foreign policy initiative military is of course a uh, important ingredient of it but military cannot be dictating uh, what the regional understanding should be so to that extent indo pacific command cannot encompass the military dimension should not overshadow the diplomatic and the external affairs dimension of the thing because it's not only a military relationship there is actually a very strong economic factor to it there are so many other factors that get enmeshed into it so it's primarily an external affairs thing not only a military part one of the things that we're looking at is how things might change over the next 4 or 5 years in the indo-pacific what would you like to see happen in the indo-pacific over the next 4 or 5 years that would be good for india see i would like to see better connectivity in fact within indo-pacific i would want better connectivity better infrastructure like when i say connectivity as far as overland connectivity as far as india is concerned india's overland connectivity to its eastern neighbors to actually central asia and even to china for that matter because india's connectivity through pakistan is virtually an impossibility in today's context also what we need to look at is um, i think uh, indian navy is already moving around and i think we have occupied a preeminent position as far as indian ocean region is concerned we would see far more interaction with other countries of the region especially south pacific is one region where indian navy has started going frequently and i think we need to develop better relations with fiji and other countries of the region i think uh, slowly but certainly uh, australia and new zealand are realizing the significance of india and our relations with these two countries are on the upswing i wish we would have joined rcep which would have cemented this relationship further but i think uh, hopefully in near future at some stage we should get on to this bandwagon and that will see economic relationships taking a quantum jump we've been talking a lot about essentially the quad countries so us japan australia but what are some of the other countries in the region that are important to india as the indo pacific develops See, there is uh, no doubt when you talk of quad even though it's not part of it the most important country is china because the quad is perceived by china's exclusion actually the more significant factor which uh, draws the quad together is actually the, the fact that the china is excluded from it so china is important and i think china is india's largest trading partner as of now and the trade is growing and uh, india still has to take a call on 5g rollout at a time when most of the western countries have gone in for huawei and of course us and some of the countries are objecting and are uh, looking at certain malafide intents as far as huawei's 
technological prowess is concerned. But the fact of the matter is that today Huawei provides the best 5G technology as the least cost. So in any competitive bidding, which does not exclude Huawei, I think it would be the natural partner for providing that sort of technology. The other countries which are extra-regional are present uh, are UK and France. UK, because it was the colonial power, it dominated many countries of this particular region and has some connections with most of them through Commonwealth. A large number of diaspora from former colonies have migrated to UK. But the diaspora in UK has really not been able to contribute as much to Indo-UK relations as it has done in the case of Indo-US relationship. Because Indian diaspora's coming of age has actually cemented India-US relationship. Because as the diaspora grew rich, it's become far more influential. And today, Indian diaspora in US is the richest diaspora. It's even overtaken the Jewish diaspora. And consequently, we see it has a huge role to play. And the very fact that President Trump attended Prime Minister Modi's rally shows the huge influence that the Indian diaspora yields. Unfortunately, that's not happened in the Britain's case because there is also a huge Pakistani diaspora, which is equally influential, if not more, because of the numbers that are involved. And that has created... Also, there has a tendency within certain lawmakers in UK to see themselves as still a colonial power and keep passing value judgments on... Uh, events happening in the South Asia, which actually creates a bad blood between the two countries. So while India-UK relations have been good, they might undergo certain strain because especially when Britain is actually going for a Brexit, if it doesn't maintain its good relations with its Commonwealth nations, of which India is one of the largest economies, I think uh, it will be problematic for UK as well. Because from India's point of view, now investing in UK does not make a sense. Because if it's not part of the EU, for an Indian businessman to invest in UK is actually now futile. So an Indian investment in UK as on date is substantial. And this fact needs to be appreciated. Historically, for India, France has been very important. In fact, you can say India's non-alignment drew from France. France was though non, not non-aligned, but the way Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle behaved while being part of the Western alliance, he tried to keep his independence and neutrality, tried to distance himself from the America-led military alliance, came very close to what India wanted, which did not want to commit itself to any military alliance or things like that. And as a result, we found France to be something... Uh, what we aspire to be, an independent, powerful country, independent of taking its own decisions. And I think France has stood by India in tough times, especially after the Pokhran II blast when the whole world had imposed sanctions on it. France was one of the first countries which opened up to India, and French president came to India as the chief guest during the Republic Day which to my mind was a high point. Also, France has a substantive permanent presence in Indian Ocean region as well as in Pacific Islands. So France has a permanent military presence here. And I think collaboration with France is feasible. Of course, France has pitfalls that most of its possessions in Indian Ocean and Pacific are contested. There are contestations over those possessions. Uh, some of those feel that they are nothing but a legacy of a colonial past. And uh, that creates problems with the littoral countries. 
one may have to do certain amount of tempering but so is the case in indian ocean where british indian ocean territories still continue to be occupied by britain and leased to us despite uk courts giving judgments to the contrary the international tribunals giving judgments to the contrary because mauritius is a small country not able to enforce its will and how about the india japan relationship because one of the defining moments in this whole indo-pacific construct was when prime minister abe came to the indian parliament see india japan relationship is very very important because japan is one of the few countries which enjoys enormous goodwill in indian all round indian public has a very very benign opinion of japan uh, most indians will talk good about japan and which is in stark contrast with most of the other asian countries in fact from korea down to china to southeast asia most of the countries are extremely apprehensive of japan india actually also encourages prime minister abe's attempt to make japan a normal country get over those constitutional impediments which had been imposed on it after the second world war so that japan could become a country capable of defending its own frontiers having its own strengths etc so i think as far as japan is concerned india has a lot of congruence and japanese economic muscle power the aid which has been coming to india that coupled with india's uh, burgeoning manpower could be a good investment strategy for many of the third countries because japan has the capital and we have the technical manpower required because one of the pitfalls of japan is that it's facing an acute demographic shortage because the population is shrinking year after year so japan and india actually complement each other quite well and i think if the two countries can get their act together they could make a very very potent economic force over the next 4 5 years what are the things that you're concerned about in the indo-pacific and what are the things that you think would indicate a good direction for india in the indo-pacific i think one of the things that i'm most concerned about is the radicalization in fact terrorism which is nothing but a manifestation of radicalization because fundamentalism is on the growth and this is something which will transcend national borders and this region happens to be the epicenter of the global terror regrettably the global community has still not come on one page as far as tackling this menace is concerned people still qualify their responses based on circumstances to circumstances and place to place and that i think needs to go this is of course a very big challenge because the way technological advancements are taking place terror is no longer localized another factor which is going to be significant is environmental issues because with the global warming taking place you could see the sea levels rise that antarctic uh, sea melt uh, and of course uh, we saw arctic sea melt this year and then there is an antarctic ice wall which could crash and get into the waters which will raise sea level significantly many of the countries might cease to exist many of the countries might lose bulk of their land and it will create problems which the global community needs to think about it especially in view of the fact that certain countries of the globe are just not willing to take cognizance of the climate change or environmental issues Uh, my name is Anil Debli I represent the Indian National Ship Owners Association which is a 90 year old body formed for the purposes of increasing the footprint of Indian shipping industry at the very outset i think we stand for more investment in the indian tonnage and uh, we support foreign investment in indian shipping 
We had a discussion today about the potential role of that in the Indo-Pacific. And could you please describe a little bit some of the things that we're talking about in terms of the role of the merchant component of yeah. the merchant navy component? So it's exceedingly important, as I said uh, today morning, the relationship between economic strength and strategic strength. And I think uh, the merchant navy brings the economic side to the whole strategic strength. Today, close to about 70% of India's cargo uh, in terms of energy and uh, in terms of food, close to about 90% of India's food is carried on non-Indian controlled tonnage. I think it's important to ensure that our supply chains are in order, at least to such an extent that will stand us in good state on emergency. And therefore, we believe that there is a need to connect cargo with the transportation chain. We pay a huge amount of money for import of shipping services, whereas our own shipping services we provide to countries outside India. And given the fact that we spend such a huge amount of money on our shipping freight, which is almost $52 billion, it is important for India to start ensuring that commercially we start exporting shipping services. And that can easily be done by linking our cargo with the control of shipping services. So our tonnage carrying our cargo that tonnage can be owned by anybody, but as long as it's Indian tonnage, what gives us is the strategic depth because we are then able to control that supply chain and the transportation. Another thing that you mentioned also this morning was the use of that kind of a ship during a time of crisis, for example. Yes. So I drew parallels during the 1971 war when the ships of Shipping Corporation of India were used for the purposes of transporting cargo to Bangladesh, East Pakistan in those days, and then moving a lot of refugees also. Similarly, we played a role in the, at the time when uh, people had to be evacuated out of Kuwait. We had to bring in oil from during the Iran-Iraq war. So there is a huge strategic role, and this role has been recognized by the U.S., by the PLA themselves. The PLA talks about having a merchant navy fleet to support them. It is well known in history that Britain won the battle because of a strong merchant navy. And the U.S. also recognizes the navy as a fourth line of defense. And I believe somehow we seem to lack this understanding of the importance of merchant navy. We believe in a very simple way to say that if I can hail a taxi and go from location A to B, why do I need to own the car? But you have to remember that part of the car must be owned by you somewhere, someday. Is it something that other countries in the region, you're, you're mentioning about BIMSTEC, for example, yeah. find of interest? Oh, yes. I think most countries within the region, smaller countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, all of them promote national fleet, promote movement of cargo on national fleet. We are perhaps the biggest country within this BIMSTEC region who have huge amount of cargo, freight, but do not promote a national fleet. What I believe we should do is, it's not necessary that I need to do all the business as an Indian company, but if BIMSTEC itself can get together and form some kind of regional alliance for movement of cargo on ships which are owned by these countries, perhaps you will begin a good exchange of movement of cargo. And that can then lead to greater cooperation. Who knows? I mean, the uh, Indo-Pacific need not necessarily be about fighting. It may all be about even working together. My name is Arun Kumar Gupta. I'm the Managing Director of India Ports Global Limited, which is a company specifically created by Government of India for Chabar Port in Iran. So Chabar Port is one of those locations where uh, commercial interests and strategic interests become very closely aligned, or at least that's the perception from the outside. 
from the perception within India, why was Chabahar such an important development? Chabahar is important to India because of uh, our relations with Afghanistan and also Iran. Afghanistan, as you know, is a landlocked country and unfortunately it has gone through a lot of turmoil, internal unrest. The country needs reconstruction and we are committed to support the economic growth of Afghanistan. At present, whatever seaborne trade of Afghanistan is passing through Karachi, we want to give an alternative route through Chabar. So basically, India's interest in Chabar was to support development and growth of Afghanistan. Which seems like a very desirable outcome. However, there have been the U.S. sanctions and whatnot that have made it very difficult to operationalize some aspects of it. So how much understanding do you think there is outside of the region of India's regional priorities and how things like Chabahar can create stability that in other contexts would be considered desirable, but because of interests of countries from outside the region get stymied a little bit? Chabar port is basically for regional connectivity. Chabar is very close to west coast of India. From our Kandla port, it is barely 550 nautical miles. And from Bombay, it is about 780, 790 nautical miles. So it's not a great distance. And a lot of trade happens between India and Iran also. A lot of rice goes, soya bean, meal. So, and instead of going to Bandar Abbas, it can go to Chabar, which is on the eastern side of the country, no point cargo going all the way about 300 nautical miles further. So Chabar helps bilateral trade between India and Iran and also helps transit of cargo through Chabar to Afghanistan. There's a lot of discussion about port development throughout the Indo-Pacific. So is this the sort of thing that India is interested in in other regions as well? Or is it a specific to, to this relationship? India has not developed Chabar port. Chabar port has been developed by Iran themselves. Our arrangement with the Iranian government is that we will equip the port and we will operate the port for 10 years. So that is the understanding. So basically equipping and operating the port. See, when this agreement for Chabar port was signed, concurrently there was another agreement signed between India, Iran and Afghanistan, that is a trilateral transit agreement. As I was saying during our discussions there, to bring the logistic cost down is very important. Unfortunately, on this part of the globe, our logistic cost comes about 15 to 17%, whereas ideal should be around 8 to 10%. Finally, the implication of the logistic cost is passed on to the customer, which is really undesirable. I know that there are a lot of other countries that would like to work with India on port development or operations. Is it something that India is receptive to? See, port development can be for two reasons. India's interest in a port can be, as I said, either strategic or commercial. I would say leave the commercial part aside. When government of India is involved, that means we have a strategic interest. Now, Adani is going to participate. Uh, it's already signed an agreement for a container terminal in Rangoon. So that is co purely commercial. Let him do it. There's a private entity. There's a commercial viability. Okay, 
let him operate the port. But when government of India is a G2G understanding, when government of India gets involved in supporting a country, like Alok was also mentioning Kaladan. So there is, is a strategic interest to enhance connectivity. It might not be commercially viable. Even in Chabar, we are going to lose money. But for the greater interest, government of India is prepared to invest for the larger interest. And that was Strategic Perceptions of the Indo-Pacific from India. Next episode, we have the Strategic Perceptions of the Indo-Pacific from the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. I'm Cleo Pascal. Thank you for listening.